0: Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Stephen Hackett. I'm joined as always by my co-host Jason Snell. Not always. Um, I'm always here,
1: apparently, but you're not always here. You were gone last time. Yes.
0: I took an episode off. Uh, I had a little uh, outpatient uh, operation deal. Uh, Big thanks to Zach for coming on. I really enjoyed listening to the episode. Zach's doing really great work at Space Explored. uh, You got to listen to an episode of Liftoff. What must that be like? It's weird. I've never done it before. Yeah. So uh, I was trying to think. I don't know if... There there probably is. I don't know if there haven't been many episodes where one of us isn't here. I don't think there's been an episode where, where we haven't done it together. I'm not sure there has been. So
1: it's uh it was it was a little weird. I had to like, you know, put in the music and do mm-hmm. all those things. I'm sure. I'm sure as with other podcasts that I edit occasionally that um that you were like, Whoa, well that's not how the show usually starts. And I'm like, <laughs> that's a lot of know. music. <laughs> I know. I I I go the other way where I where I'm like, I'm not gonna make it the same. I'm gonna yeah. make it different because I'm in charge now. For that's right. One yeah. Fortnight. So Yeah, you're right. Yeah, it was great to have Great to have Zach on. Yes. Uh, a lot of fun. He he is, I mean, like I said in that episode, um, his, his area of interest and in professional work is so close to ours that mm-hmm. it's hilarious. Yeah. Um, so, and good for him for parlaying his interest in space into... A whole, you know, large portion of what he does. We this is just a little tiny portion of what we do, but um, he's he's uh, living the dream
0: and mm-hmm. moved to Orlando and just going to launches and uh, it's great. Let's get into some stuff. I want to talk about yep. Jim Breinstein's future.
1: Yeah, um, so that episode was two weeks ago. And therefore, it was on election day. It was. <laughs> yeah. And and Zach and I talked a little bit uh, about some articles that were like, what, what would change in a Biden administration versus the Trump administration for NASA, uh, thinking in part like a good media personality that better get that story out now when we don't know, because obviously, if one election result happened, the story would be irrelevant. So instead, you talk about it before you know. However... Um, Trump lost. Biden won. So we are going into that world. And we had speculated last time about Bridenstine because it's this interesting story that he was so criticized and approved on a party line vote because he was not from the aerospace or space industry. He was a uh, a Republican member of Congress. And the feeling was that that was a bad idea to make him a NASA administrator. Whoever had that idea, as it turns out, Um, In the Trump administration, it was a really good idea because he's proven to be actually a pretty great NASA administrator, Mm -hmm. um, but still serves at the at the uh, desire of the president, essentially. And he is uh, an appointee of a Republican administration. And he made it very clear in an interview with Aviation Week the day after the election that he will resign. He will hand in his resignation for January 20th, 2021 and there'll be presumably an acting administrator that will step in while the confirmation process goes on. And he, the way he phrased it, which I thought was really good, is what you need in this job is somebody who has a close relationship with the president of the United States, someone who's trusted by the administration, including the Office of Management and, Bu- and Budget, the National Space Council, and the National Security Council. And I think I would not be the right person for that in a new administration, which... Fair enough. I think that the bottom line is that this is a job that is a political appointee, and he was one, and he recognizes that he is that the other the other guys are coming in, and so he would it wouldn't be appropriate. Um, it, what's interesting is there was <laughs> there was another report that said, uh, Bridenstein wasn't going to be the NASA administrator in a second Trump administration anyway.
0: Well before we get into that, I will say that is a remarkably self aware statement on his part that okay, yeah. you know, the other party's coming in and my background puts me kind of in the opposite camp. Like, yeah, he's not wrong. But uh I don't know, I just I read that I was like, you know, that that makes a lot of sense given his background and kind of where everything has landed. But um but yeah, there's there's been speculation that there has been uh could we call it frustration or stress. <laughs> Um, between him and the White House, yeah, I think it's interesting too
1: because it hasn't. Unlike we, we've we said this last time, um. Unlike so many posts in the Trump administration where they just cycle through people mm-hmm. and then they get fired or, and they maybe never get replaced and there's just acting people and all of that, Bridenstine got confirmed. He's done the job. There's never really been any talk of getting rid of him. He hasn't had any mean tweets from the president. Instead, the president tends to send tweets about how awesome the space launch is or that space launch or whatever. And uh, and you know, I think Bridenstine's really working more with Pence because of the Space Council anyway than with Trump directly. But it's definitely true that there has been uh, some reporting of an undercurrent of tension between the White House and NASA. And this is interesting to, to phrase it that way. I think there are people within the Trump administration who wanted Bridenstine to phrase things a certain way in order to promote how great The Trump administration was. Or uh, there's a good article about this at Ars Technica. Of course, Eric Berger at Ars Technica, he's right on it. He says, During his tenure as NASA administrator, Bridenstine embraced climate science, supported Earth science missions. The president's advisors wanted Bridenstine to bash his predecessors more to contrast the success of the Trump space program with the failure of President Obama's. But Bridenstine more or less held the line, crediting his predecessors for creating and funding the commercial crew program that led to SpaceX's dramatic crude flight in may right. and i know we talked about it a few months ago but it's absolutely true like bridenstine was very much given the opportunity to claim full credit for everything that was going on with commercial crew and he specifically called out charlie bolden who was the his predecessor as NASA administrator you know he didn't pretend that there was nothing before and i'm sure that there are people inside the white house as this says, the president's advisors, who had the knives out for him, because even though he's been effective and has bipartisan support, he's failed at what I'm just going to say it they think is the most important job of anybody in government, which is to puff up the president. So um, that is dispiriting, but not surprising that Bridenstine wouldn't have made it probably through another Trump administration anyway. Even mm-hmm. though he's the most effective appointee in the entire government, basically.
0: Yeah, I I agree with with all of that. Uh, on the the fifteenth, uh, Trump tweeted like NASA was a was closed up, and then we took over, and now it's yeah, it's hot again, right. and that's right. just I mean, not. That's, True.
1: (laughs) They want Bridenstine to say that. And and the truth is, in the Trump administration, um, that's where the line is drawn. You either agree with all the things that uh, the president and the people around him want you to say, whether it's true or not, or you're not on their side. And Bridenstine very much would not play that game. And he is a conservative Republican former congressman from Oklahoma. It's not like he is this token liberal in the Trump administration, but he at NASA drew the line at uh at lying about mm-hmm. the truth of how uh about how earth science works at NASA about the fact that he's trying to get again remember brightenstein's great advantage as NASA administrator was he's a good politician and he got bipartisan support for artemis um you're less likely to do that if you're seen as just a liar who says whatever the president wants you to say even though it's not true and brightenstein refused to play that game his full credit to him which I guess leads to our next point, which is what happens next to everybody involved in this Um Bridenstine has said he feels like he really has set up solid bipartisan support for Artemis and the missions to the moon and that they will continue. A lot of reports suggest that the first thing to go, and Zach and I mentioned this last time, first thing to go is going to be this dream that they're going to get there in 2024 at the end of yeah. a theoretical second Trump administration. Well, not only is that second Trump administration not happening and not ending in 2024, but everybody knew all along they weren't going to land on the moon in 2024. So expect some reality in terms of Artemis dates. Probably more like the last last half of this decade and just kind of keeping i mean that's one year slip is still sort of the last half but maybe it's a couple of years but it'll be a more realistic date
0: yeah when it comes yeah that's already kind of proving out so to hit the 2024 date nasa sought i think it was three billion dollars for the human landing system and it looks like congress is going to do at most a billion dollars and so that 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 was always the case probably that 24 wasn't going to happen. But I think that you're right that it will sort of officially move back, you know, maybe to to 2028 or or something like that. And that does uh, spread out the bill, which Congress likes, you know, where they they don't have to come up with $3 billion uh, every fiscal year to make this happen between now and then. But yeah, I, I think that the date is the first thing to go. I think Artemis... My guess is Artemis will stay roughly intact, but except for the date. I, I think so. I, and, and the reality is, I think there will probably be some Republicans who make
1: hay and say, like, look, you know, the, as soon as you, you put Biden in office, uh, here goes space. It's getting slowed down again. The truth is they were never going to make that date. And an injection of reality is the right way to go here. But it's also important, uh, a recurring theme on this podcast and something that is why I think Bridenstine did such a good job is the the most debilitating thing for U.S. space Projects is complete changes in direction when the administration changes. And so, you know, you end up with. Uh, George W. Bush saying we're going to go to Mars, and then Obama saying we're going to go to an asteroid or or the moon, and then uh, Trump saying we're no we're going to land on the moon, and then if the Biden administration comes in and says I don't know we're gonna we're just going to send a bunch of people in a balloon to Venus that's going to be a debilitating moment because they're going to have to tear down the Artemis mission and start building a uh, Venus mission of some sort, and I mean that's I, I'm being silly, but like you get the point, like you can't you got to have a sustained focus. And I think Bridenstine's legacy is going to be that everybody's pretty much on board with the idea of going back to the moon, building the gateway, uh, having the commercial lunar exploration stuff, figuring out how to have a, uh, essentially a an extended lunar exploration series of missions, and then always keeping kind of Mars off in the distance as the next step after you, uh, you learn and establish on the moon. It seems like everybody's kind of pulling in the same direction there, and that's really good because that has tended not to happen in the last couple of decades when we've had a change in administrations.
0: Yeah, you don't even have to look back that far, right, where the Obama administration came out in 2008 and... Kind of rebooted a bunch of stuff, and that's where uh, SLS comes from. Uh, and, yeah. and Orion was really the only thing that survived the kind of the previous plan. So the constellation plan, right? Yeah. And so, yeah, it definitely does change. But I'm I'm hopeful that the the main focus will uh, be retained between uh, between the two administrations.
1: There's also um, some well, talking about policies of the new uh, a, a new administration. The the big change that everybody's saying is not like Artemis and tearing that down or anything like that. It's about Earth science, yes, especially using NASA's wide array of satellites to study the Earth and study the climate. And that is the place where, to grossly oversimplify this, because NASA, you know, NASA still does Earth science, but I would say the general drift of the trump administration policies about space were let's face outward and stop looking at the earth and one big part of what nasa has done traditionally is earth science from orbit where they are looking at things especially now involving climate change and for obvious political reasons they decided they just didn't want a government organization under their watch to supply data that might you know tell people that there's climate change and that it's real. That will obviously change in a Biden administration. The earth science stuff is going to get funded uh, and prioritized. But um, that doesn't change, I think, the other missions that are going on. It's, it's really just a matter of kind of backtracking on the slippage of funding for a lot of earth science in the last four years.
0: Yeah, I think the other thing that uh, may also really get a boost is the STEM education the one that keep trying yeah, to kill programs <laughs> the one that keep trying to kill and congress keeps saying no don't do it i think that it will be off the chopping block
1: yeah, I think that's about right. There's also a lot of speculation about who the next NASA administrator will be. And it's early days, and they haven't said anything about it. But there's a lot of speculation it will be the first woman to be a NASA administrator. Uh, President-elect Biden has said that he wants his cabinet and his appointees to look more like America. And that would mean more people of color and more women than in the current administration. Um, and there's even and I'm not saying she's even the front runner here. But what tickled me is that there is a representative who lost her election this year. Uh, she was the chair of the House Space Subcommittee. Her name is Kendra Horn. And she's even from Oklahoma. How hilarious is that? So who knows? We could just replace one uh, U.S. representative from Oklahoma with another. Uh, <laughs> but there are other options too. So anyway, we'll, we'll keep an eye on that. And it'll be interesting to see as the transition happens Um what that means in terms of new priorities at NASA. And I'm I'm also, again, as somebody who's on this podcast, super skeptical about the appointing of Jim Bridenstine as NASA administrator, uh, there, there have already been a couple of articles, and I expect more between now and January 20th, um, really saying this guy did a good job under difficult circumstances, and I think he's going to get a lot of praise, um, which means... You know what? What will he do with that and his relatively positive reviews of his tenure as the NASA administrator? I don't know. First off, the dude's only forty-five. Like he's he's so young. I, I was like, "What? The NASA administrator is five years younger than I am." Oh boy, uh, he's done a good job. He's got a young family, and has said he wants to move back to Oklahoma. A young and growing family. Um, I imagine that being NASA administrator has been a very consuming job, and that's been difficult. And 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 he will uh, take some time and think about what he wants to do next. I would not be shocked if he runs for office again uh, for some office in Oklahoma, given his. Ah, uh, increased profile, and the fact that that is a red state. So if he can get in, he, if he can be successful in a primary, he will win office there. Um, I also wouldn't be surprised if he just, you know, becomes some sort of aerospace executive and rakes in the sweet, sweet government rocket money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's up, Jim Bridenstine. Uh, the world is your oyster. Uh, what we'll we'll look forward to to what you do next. But I think job well done under very difficult circumstances.
0: Yeah, and he has brought so much of industry into NASA and, and forming those partnerships. Like, if he wants to go right. work somewhere, he can go work somewhere. <laughs> That's going to be a problem.
1: Yeah, I would. I would think that um, you make all those connections, and then they're like, "Well, yes, we would like you to be our lobbyist or connection to NASA or whatever." And that that's definitely a possibility. But it's. I think that's the nice thing for him is he he can he can afford to take a break, and figure out what's next. But he's got a lot of options yeah. and uh, good and good reviews. And let's let's be blunt: there are very few people coming out of the Trump administration with good reviews. So <laughs> that's true. Good job, Jim Bridenstine. Good job. Let's talk about Kilanovas. Yeah, um, I'm a Uh not killer nova, by the way, a kilonova. I mean, if you're it's close still, enough, it's... <laughs> yeah, that's what I was going to say. It, it sounds cool. It also sounds like really
0: bad. Really bad. So back in the spring, uh, back in May, a bunch of astronomers and telescopes spotted an unusual explosion of light out in the universe, this huge burst of gamma rays, and board got around, a bunch of telescopes swung in that direction, including the Hubble. And what Hubble showed is that the near-infrared emission from this explosion was like 10 times larger than expected. So a really unusual amount of near-infrared light coming from whatever was going on out there. And it's not still not quite nailed down what's going on here, but uh, a new theory that has uh, been published is that... This could be uh, our witnessing the birth of a massive neutron star. Uh, These are also known as magnetars, which was Mm. a new word to me. I love it. You can stick it on your fridge. It's right. The gravity of the star would destroy everything inside of it, though. Yeah. So uh, a little bit about this. Normally, these are created by explosions of dying stars. So you have this massive explosion... And you have that material kind of being collected back up, and then you get this massive neutron star. But this is because of the infrared emission. Uh, it it may be from a collision of neutron stars. So this could be our seeing a new way, a new way to us of these massive neutron stars being born through a collision. Usually, when neutron stars collide, you get a black hole. But it seems like under the right circumstances, you could get one of these massive stars as a result which is cool a new, a new way we didn't know stars were born it's not really a star right it's like a weird post-stellar object but yeah but it's a it's it's
1: this idea of like oh well how would this oddball thing happen and the answer is well you take two oddball things and they run into each other and some percentage of the time uh because of their presumably their mass uh they don't end up as a black hole and instead what does that object look like and the answer is it's this super strange there's a strange explosion and then you're left with a very peculiar object called a magnetar so uh i i like this because it's really like the odds and ends of the universe in a way right it's like these are these are outlier objects interacting with other outlier objects but it does end up explaining of things we see in the universe that we're like how did that happen right so this is a cool uh finding that maybe now we we get it why the kilonova happens which is uh which is just uh neutron stars causing trouble like as they do killer nova kilonova
0: killer all right so the big the big story right now is cr- the crew one flight yeah. the first operational flight of commercial crew the year of commercial crew is here we officially. did it, everybody. <laughs> we we did it. Uh, so this weekend, a SpaceX crew dragon named Resilience took four crew members to the space station. I want to talk a little bit about the, the crew members. They come from a very wide and varied background. And like on the demo flight with uh, our friends Bob and Doug, it's uh, a crew that has a lot of collective experience in space. Uh, Only one of the four is their first flight. The others have uh, quite a bit of experience, especially aboard the space station. We're going to talk about what this mission entails in a second. But uh, the commander is Mike Hopkins. He's a colonel in the U.S. Air Force. He will become the first Space Force astronaut. Uh, when all sort of that paperwork is done. He has spent 166 days in space aboard the International Space Station already, so he's going to be adding uh, quite a bit number of days to that. Pilot is Victor Glover, a U.S. Navy commander. He became an astronaut in 2013. This is his first space flight, and uh, he is making history as the first black astronaut to join an extended crew mission aboard the International Space Station. Black astronauts have been to the station, but it was during sort of the construction phase, not in the sort of extended mission phase that the station is in now. Right. Not on an expedition mission. Yes, an expedition. There is a fantastic article in the show notes in the New York Times profiling uh, Victor Glover that you should go read. He seems like a really cool guy. Yeah, very much so.
1: And I I like his attitude in this as people have asked him about being the first Black astronaut on the space station extended mission. He's basically said, "One, wait until I get there, (laughs) and and two, like let's not make too big a deal out of this." Like he's he's he knows that it's important, but he also doesn't want it to be the thing that defines what he's doing. It's it's yeah, he seems like a really smart, thoughtful guy who Mm -hmm. is well aware of the burden that um sort of wants to be put on him, and he's willing to accept it, but not kind of on his own terms and not on someone else's terms. It's just, it, it, I really appreciated how he seems to have thought of uh, a lot about uh, a lot of stuff, which, you know, I think that's the dream of every astronaut is you want them to be these the best of the best and these incredibly bright, thoughtful people, but you do wonder sometimes, are they thoughtful about uh, bigger issues or are they really focused on their job? And Victor Glover is definitely thinking about the big picture too, mm-hmm. which is uh, very cool. And I didn't know a lot about him. That's a great article.
0: Yeah. You want to tell us about the other true other two crew members?
1: Sure. Uh, well, there's Shannon Walker, who is a mission specialist. Um, she's a PhD. She first uh, worked I think we mentioned her a couple weeks ago or, or a couple episodes ago uh, because she worked at NASA as a robotics flight engineer in the space shuttle program um, and then kind of like parlayed that as a contractor and then parlayed that to working at NASA. Uh, flew in 2010. Spent 163 days on the International Space Station. Um, the uh, She flew with Amelia Earhart's watch, which is kind of cool, right? Like, yeah, really cool. As a, as a uh, women in aerospace uh, kind of thing. Uh, anyway, so so Shannon Walker. And then the fourth member is not a NASA astronaut. He is a JAXA astronaut, the Japan Aerospace Exploration Agency, or JAXA. And that his name is Soichi Noguchi. Uh, also a PhD, he was on a space shuttle mission, STS-114, which was the return to flight after Columbia uh, and spent 163 days aboard the station in 2009, 2010. And, And so to be clear here, we have two people who've waited a decade to go back into space. Somebody who's been an astronaut for seven years and hasn't been into space yet, and then the commander. So a lot of uh excited people who are getting. I mean, honestly, we're going to hear a lot about this now, where there's this whole buildup of astronauts, and they've been waiting for commercial crew to be fully operational, where they can cycle up four astronauts at a time.
0: And we're there. Here we are. Yeah, I think there'll be a lot of names that uh, are new to the public in the, over yeah. the next few years, definitely. Um, this is the, uh, the first time that an expedition crew will increase from six to seven people. So it's, uh, getting to be a full house on the station.
1: Right. Because previously it was, you could have two Soyuzes, each were three seaters and you could have six. Now we've got a Soyuz and a Crew Dragon so that you've got seven, Um, And I'm unclear on what happens when, if there's a second crew dragon attached, because that may actually happen in the spring and what they do. And does the Soyuz leave? And then there's, there's eight, or are there even more people? We're going to have to work this out. And they have to work it out because a funny quirk of this is that uh, Mike Hopkins is going to have to sleep in the crew dragon. Because they don't have seven hammocks, seven sleep stations <laughs> oh, no. on the ISS. They only have six. Now, they're supposed to, I think maybe the Cargo Dragon is bringing another one up and they're supposed to set it up and stuff. But in the interim, apparently Mike Hopkins volunteered to sleep in Crew Dragon instead, in, in Resilience, because they don't have a place for him to sleep in the ISS. So he's going to have to camp out, like uh, like camping in your backyard kind of thing. That's a good move for the commander, though, to, to take that yeah. upon himself. Take it on. Take it on. Also, it's like you, you get that new spaceship smell. It's going to be great. That's He's right. He's going to love it. <laughs> Hanging out there with all those touchscreens. Yeah, and Baby Yoda. And Baby Yoda, yep. The zero gravity, for those who do not know, the zero gravity indicator, which is the mascot stuffed animal in the, the flight of Crew 1, was Baby Yoda from The Mandalorian. So,
0: yes, cute. Uh, a couple of little hiccups. There was an issue uh, with the... Hatch, uh, getting it closed and and passing a leak test. Uh, so it failed the leak test once the crew was in. So they had to reopen it, and there there was a there was some debris on the seal. We're not quite sure what that was. I don't <sighs> think. And it was cleaned, and then the seal was adjusted, and then it, it closed and passed the leak test. Uh, my guess is is that this issue will be looked at hard by NASA and SpaceX because you you can't have um, for an object debris. Yeah. How did it get this there? Area? Yep. So I, I, I think we'll probably hear more about that as time goes on. Uh, they're going to make sure that this is not an issue again. And then it launched, everything was great. Uh, I kind of, uh, you know, turned off the TV and went back to my day. And, um, and then a little bit later there was an issue with three of the four heaters. So those Draco thrusters, the fuel has to be kept uh at a certain temperature and once you're out in the vacuum space it's very cold and you've got to be able to keep it uh in the the correct temperature range so they have heaters that do that and three of the four uh were shut down it turned out it was an electrical resistance issue and they were able to adjust that um it seemed that the setting was maybe overly conservative. So they were able to change it and everything came back up. Uh, Those heaters weren't flown before um, because they're only needed for long duration flights. And, and so this, this equipment hadn't been aboard those previous missions, but it seems like they were able to work it out from the ground with this setting. Again, probably be a tweak that's made to future crew dragon. So they don't have to adjust it every flight, but they got it resolved. And, uh, they kept about their way. Yeah, it's good. It's,
1: it's all fine. They end up docking um, a funny quirk of orbital mechanics. They were originally going to go on Saturday. They had to delay it to Sunday. It's an instantaneous launch window because they want to line up perfectly with the ISS. But not all launch windows are the same. And so the reason, by the way, which is the coolest reason, I think, ever to delay a launch. They delayed the launch on Saturday. Not because they couldn't launch from the site because of weather, but because they were concerned about the weather where the drone ship was in the Atlantic that needed to catch the first stage, which I think things are going pretty good when you're like, well, we could launch, but we're not because we're going to use that first stage again to Mm -hmm. launch people next time, which is actually the plan is to use that stage for crew two, I believe. Um that's pretty cool. So they, they launched Sunday instead, instantaneous launch window. So you either hit it or you don't. They had this debris issue. They clean it up. They're like, we're still good. They go. It's all good. But this time, instead of waiting like six hours to get to the ISS, it's more than 24 hours. They have to sit for a day waiting to eventually catch up with the iss it's a funny quirk of orbital mechanics we saw this with demo two as well like every time you delayed it you ended up with a a different by a lot number of hours it's not consistent at all in terms of how you have to catch up to the the international space station but they did it after a day floating around with baby yoda they connected you know the auto uh it's an automatic system so it automatically docks, and they open the hatch, and now you've got seven people at an international space station with beds for six.
0: So, <laughs> and 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 on on they go. Off this uh, new expedition mission goes. Uh, they're slated to stay on the station for six months, returning in the spring of twenty one. There's a funny quirk about this that it makes it the longest human space mission launched from the U.S. This is longer than any single shuttle could stay well shuttle missions don't go up for six months no they don't so this is a sign of the sort of the commercial crew technology that the the crew dragon and then eventually the boeing um the starliner they both have a requirement to to be able to stay on orbit for 210 days and so part of this is um getting uh getting that requirement met right and remember bob and doug
1: in demo two they weren't supposed to stay at all and they stayed for a while a few Mm -hmm. months because they needed to to help out yeah need to clean clean the kitchen and stuff (laughs) yeah it says they need they were needed they needed to change the batteries and the solar panels and stuff Uh, but this is a full-on expedition mission so um they're going to be there for six months and yes by the way crew two is scheduled to go up in march which means if that happens they will overlap uh, which is a, a funny thing, right? There'll be two uh, crew dragons at the ISS at the same time and then and then the crew one uh, resilience will come back. Um, there is going to be a delicate dance of docking at the International Space Station during this period because first off, so uh, uh, resilience is at IDA 2 international or international docking adapter number two, right, which is on the US side of the space station. That's where they're docked. Um, but they're going to have to move it around. There's a cargo dragon coming. It's going to dock at IDA 3 because uh, it needs access to the, the Canadarm. And IDA 3 slot, there's access so that the arm can grab stuff out of the cargo ship. Um, but the Boeing Starliner, if they do the OF2, OFT2 test flight of Starliner, That needs to dock at IDA too. So they would need, after Cargo Dragon leaves, they would all need to get in to Resilience and then pop off of IDA-2 and move to IDA-3, but they can't do that now because they've gotta wait for the cargo ship to get there. So then they go to IDA-3 and everybody has to be on board because what if they can't reconnect for some reason and have to go back to Earth? They can't like leave. You need to have as many seats to escape the ISS as possible in case of emergency. They all have to get their stuff back on. They have to go in and then they move from IDA-2 to IDA-3. And then Starliner test flight could dock at IDA-2, And then also the Endeavor, the Crew 2 Crew Dragon, would uh, later come up and they would connect at IDA 2. So a lot, like when you've only got the two, you play these logistics games and it will involve probably uh, the whole crew from this mission getting back in just so they can kind of slide from uh, docking docking adapter 1 or 2 to 3 in this case. And, uh, but this is, this is life on the ISS now. Uh, Gwynne Shotwell, the president of SpaceX said they expect to have continuous dragon on orbit from here on out, like that, that these missions are going to overlap and there's always going to be one. And that's, that's, uh, when they're up and running, that's their plan. So, uh, it'll be interesting to watch and see if that really comes to fruition, but, uh, there's a lot going on there. And I want to ask you, Stephen, is it that IDA2 and IDA3 are where they're moving around because IDA1 blew up in that launch that you saw is that why
0: and they didn't renumber them was it like a (laughs) yeah (laughs) i don't know if they didn't renumber them but you're right cargo dragon flight that i saw in 2015 that exploded did have the first IDA. i I guess it was IDA one yeah it was it was i just looked it up and this is the part that i that makes me
1: chuckle because um you could have said well the next one is now IDA one. They didn't, so now it's like, well, why is it two and three and not one? It's like,
0: well, number one blew up. Sorry, it's yeah, you know, it's an honor of IDA one. Maybe there's a little plaque on the side of IDA two, you know, honoring his <laughs> his fallen. That's why I never forget
1: IDA one. Maybe it's just a reminder to SpaceX since they're using these adapters. Like you lost
0: one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I've seen um, I've seen IDA two in person. Which is cool. When I was uh, in 2015, they had IDA2 out in a warehouse and we got to go walk around it. And it's like, oh, that's on the... Space station now. That's really cool. There it is. They're using it now. So it'd be fun to
1: watch this. And this is how you can uh, impress your friends with your deep space knowledges uh, when they're like, why are they moving this around? You'd be like, oh, well, let me tell you, there's only the two docking adapters and the one's got arm access and the other one doesn't. But some of them can only connect to one. So they have to move things around and like, you're going to be a hit at parties if we ever had parties anymore. <laughs> Dongle Town and Space is what we're saying. Your Zoom call is going to just be enwrapped when you expand explain the difference between IDA-2 and IDA-3 and tell them the great
0: story about what happened to IDA-1. Yeah. Where's one? Uh, so Crew Dragon is delivering uh, more than just astronauts. There's uh, over 500 pounds of cargo on board. Uh, a whole bunch of science and experiments. That's one reason we have these long expedition crews is to, to run these experiments. I picked out a few that I wanted to talk about uh, with you. Okay. Uh, a couple of them are really interesting. Uh, to me some of them i think are a little more run-of-the-mill uh there are several looking at food there's one i think they're going to grow radishes on orbit and the you know in the weird uh, pink light lettuce grower that they've had on the station for a long time um there's food physiology which will study the effects of an optimized diet for the crew i don't know what optimized diet means it means a lot of fruits and vegetables probably hopefully hope grown so. on the station um There's Genes in Space 7. This is a a series of experiments aimed to understand how spaceflight affects brain function and it's student-designed, which is always cool. Bioasteroid is also interesting. It's studying microbes that here on Earth interact with rock. And the hypothesis is that if they work the same way they do here on Earth, these microbes could be used... To break down a material for use, if you think about um, maybe there's water ice trapped in in rock and material, maybe on the lunar surface, you could use these microbes to break down that rock and access the water ice inside, or just nice. even get to minerals inside of rocks, like uh, nature's hammer. Those little microbes, yeah, I like it. Mm-hmm. Tissue chip is weird. <laughs> Can we just say it? It's weird. It's this tissue chips. Is this a new processor transition? Yes, it is. Um, PC, you know, PCs and Macs will now be running on fleshy processors. No, no. So t- they are uh, what NASA calls thumb drive size devices. Um, and they actually had an example of this during the SpaceX program, you know, their live stream before the launch talking about this. And so this contains human cells in this 3D matrix material, and it's to simulate the function of organs. So they can put different types of human cells in these. And it's to test the technology itself in microgravity, looking at impact on uh, human health and disease. There is this big push in all of this research to understand what happens to the human body in long duration space flight as we're looking at Lunar and then Mars missions, that's really important when going to Mars is a trip that takes a long time. But also, I think there's an undercurrent to this stuff of if things go wrong, how can we heal the body, right? How can we use microgravity to our Uh, benefit in medicine and in in healing? And so some of this is kind of looking through that, but yeah, tissue chip, thumb drive-sized organ Human cells, just not something I want in my life. Right. I like it better now that I understand what it is, because before I didn't like it. One of those is the Cardinal Heart Study. So they are using the tissue chip structure to study engineered heart tissue. Not, I don't think they like sampled it from somebody. No. Like, hey, hey, can we use part of your heart to go to space? That's not how it works. Um, That's a terrible horror movie. I don't like (laughs) it. Yeah, I don't. It's like uh, Indiana Jones, the second one. You know, with they pull the heart out of the. I don't I like, recognize that movie at all. Yeah, that movie really freaked me out as a kid. Yeah, like, it's I, terrifying. I, I don't think I've watched it since since I was like eight or ten. <laughs> and then lastly, there's some spacesuit stuff. You want to talk about this? Yeah, the, the you mean uh, surfing? Surfing, space suit,
1: spacesuit, evaporation, rejection, flight experiment. S e r f e surf. That's a okay. guess. That's okay. Surfing, Yeah, NASA's next generation spacesuit is the Exploration Extravehicular Mobility Unit, the XEMU. Mm, okay. we uh, it, It's going to use evaporation of water to remove heat from astronauts and maintain appropriate temperatures. Very nice. This is a test of that system. So it's going to examine water evaporation, the, the membrane that is used for water evaporation, and the thermal control loop that will go in the suit. Surfy will be subjected to 25 simulated eight-hour spacewalks. Once the test campaign is complete, it will return to the ground and be disassembled for material science and water quality evaluations. So what what better to test the next-generation spacesuit than testing it in space? So that's what they're going to do.
0: Very cool. So that's liftoff this time. That's it. I mean, b- some big news. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of... A lot of transition stuff, right? Commercial crew up and running, new administration coming in, lots of things to keep track of.
1: Yeah, exactly right.
0: If you want to find links to these stories, you can head over to the website at relay.fm slash liftoff slash 137. While you're there, you can send us an email with feedback or follow up. Uh, you can also become a member to support Liftoff directly. Uh, Jason and I both uh, thank you members out there for supporting us. It means a lot to us. You can find uh, us online. Jason is Snell on Twitter, and you can find me there as ismh. And until our next fortnight, Jason, say goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Bye, y'all.